You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of James. Here's Nate. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, God speaks to Habakkuk the prophet and announces to him that the just shall live by his faith. Now, if you're a student of the New Testament, you know that that quotation is repeated three times in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, Galatians chapter 3, and also in Hebrews chapter 10. My feeling is that the book of James is a repetition of that phrase in the entirety of the letter. James is a letter that is addressed to believers who need to live with an active, alive, moving, real, living kind of faith. Those who have been justified will live by faith. Faith shows up in life. And that's what the book of James is all about. James said in chapter 2 of his epistle, verse 17, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And James 2 verse 26 says, As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is faith that is absolutely alive. Faith that must move into action. Verbal and mental faith are insufficient. Faith without works, according to James, cannot be called faith. If you call it faith, you must call it a dead faith. No, faith must work. Faith will be visible. Faith must produce. And so an incredible letter that is in front uh, of us today. Now, of course, the beginning of his letter is very similar to other introductions, although very brief. He says in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, the first thing you have to deal with, of course, in this epistle is identifying the author. There were two prominent New Testament figures who went by the name of James. One of them, of course, was one of the apostles of Christ the first apostle to be killed for his faith, Acts chapter 12, uh, by Herod the king. The other prominent James in the New Testament, and there were others who were less prominent, but the other prominent James was the half-brother of Christ. And the apostle James, uh, one of the twelve, uh, died so early that it would have been very difficult for him to actually be the author of this epistle. James, the half-brother of Jesus, actually begins to be referred to with the apostolic group. Paul said in Galatians 1 verse 19, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, uh, when he went on a trip to Jerusalem. So it seems that James became a believer. Uh, during Jesus' earthly ministry, his brothers did not believe in him, John 7, verse 5. But Paul makes it clear that after the resurrection of Christ, James had a personal meeting with Jesus. And I personally believe that it was at that moment 
that the, this half-brother of Jesus, as Mary and Joseph came together and had a, a family together after the miraculous birth of Christ, it's my belief that this man, once he saw his brother resurrected from the dead, that's when he became a believing man. Which is so wonderful because it tells us here in verse 1, he refers to himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. No reference to the fact that he's the half-brother of Jesus. He takes the humble seat. I'm a servant of God. I'm a servant of Jesus. Now, James in the book of Acts, it's very clear, had a special heart for the 12 tribes of Israel. He loved the Jerusalem church, loved the Jewish believers, became a prominent figure in ministering to them. In fact, he offered the concluding words at the Jerusalem council concerning the Gentile brethren in Acts chapter 15. Uh, but here he says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, persecuted Jewish believers. Now, Paul, when he writes his letters, sometimes has words of greetings followed by maybe memories or a list of his prayers. James is a very straightforward, to-the-point kind of author. All he says at this point is greetings. doesn't even throw in shalom, just greetings. He is, as I've already mentioned, going to show us and demonstrate for us and exhort us towards a life of real, honest faith. This is a book that is, first of all, takes the new birth in order to live these things, takes an honest examination of the heart and a preparation for the resistance that we will feel as we read this short little epistle. Now, in verse 2, he gets into his first and, in one sense, one of his more forceful exhortations when he begins to deal with the subject of trials. And who is there on earth who has not experienced the difficulty of trials? He says concerning trials in verse 2, immediately jumping into his exhortive style. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Of course, we notice here right off the bat that James considers that there are trials of various kinds. There are relational trials, physical trials, spiritual, financial, emotional, intellectual, psychological trials. There are different sizes of trials, small and medium, large, life-dominating, or just for a few minutes. There are seasons of trials. The trials of a new mother versus the trials of a new widower. There are different identity of trials. Trials that are common to human beings in general. And then some trials that are specific to believers. Secondly, we also notice that he says, when you meet trials of various kinds. We will meet them. It, it isn't if you meet trials of various kinds, but when. And so, since this is a book where James is going to tell us to live by faith and to have a faith that is active and real and constant and happening, the question then is, how does faith respond to trials? Now, we likely already know how faith does not respond to trials. We know 
what the natural man would do. James isn't out to describe a natural kind of life. No, not at all. He's out to describe a life of faith, a supernatural life. How does faith respond to trials? The natural man responds to trials with fear and anxiety and anger and complaint and disappointment, panic, sin, ultimately quitting, seeking escape. But the believer, the person who is living a life of faith, living by faith, the believer, he says in verse 2, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, James is telling us that there is something that we are to count. Accounting trials all joy isn't a false religious joy. It isn't even a feeling of joy. What it is, and this is a financial term really, to count it all joy, it's an evaluation. It's an appraisal of something. You know, an evaluator sees a property with great potential. There's nothing on it. There's no building, uh, perhaps no infrastructure, but he sees potential in it. And so he places a value upon it. That's what the believer is able to do with trials. We place a value upon it. Faith enables us to count our trials as a thing of joy because we know that they have such major potential to produce in us so wonderfully. I remember years ago, I went to my old high school, and it happened to be the homecoming football game. And as I walked in the gates for the game, a few of my old teachers recognized me, and we began to catch up a little bit. And they asked me, hey, would you like to be involved? We need a few more judges to judge the homecoming floats. And I said, sure. And they gave me some directions. And I remember one of the things they said was, as the floats are passing by the crowd, you have to judge the side that is facing the crowd. Don't judge the back of the float. It might be nice and everything, and they may have kept it nice and tidy, but they may have not. You might see wires and cables. You have to judge the side that the crowd is seeing. And that's what the believer is able to do in the midst of trials. See the correct side of the difficulty. See the correct side of the trial. Faith meets trials with an overarching ability to have faith and say, I see that there could be a joyful thing that is produced in my life as a result of this difficulty and trial. In other words, I count it all joy because I know that God can use it. And when I look back in my own life, at some of the most significant moments in my life, the greatest lessons of my life, the things that caused me to grow stronger and better and all of that, all of them were connected to times and seasons of difficulty and trial. Sometimes people say, look, whatever doesn't kill me will make me stronger. That's not true. We all know people who have been made bitter, weaker, horrible as a result of difficulties and trials. But when you meet them with faith and count it all joy, there is the possibility of something wonderful being produced. And to that, James writes verse 3. He says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces 
steadfastness. Here's the reason that we're able to count it all joy when we come across trials of various kinds. First of all, we know that there is this testing of our faith. Something is being produced. There is this purification process that we are going through. Peter said in 1 Peter 1 verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We want our faith to be tested because false or dead faith is useless at best and deadly at worst. And false faith does not save, does not sanctify, does not help, does not empower. And so we know that something is happening. Our faith is being tested. And something is being produced, he said in verse 3. We know that the testing of our faith as we go through this trial, it's not just a hard time, it's a trial, it's a testing. It produces steadfastness. Now, for me, when I first read this or initially read this, admittedly, there's not a whole lot of excitement there. Oh, okay, well, so when I'm in a trial, the thing that's being produced, if I face that trial in faith, the thing that's being produced is steadfastness, a perseverance in the face of difficulty and suffering, courage to be able to go through times of difficulty and pain. And admittedly, for me at least, at first when I read that, I think, well, that's that's not really all that wonderful of a of an attribute, is it? I mean, steadfastness. I I would love for it to say, knowing that the testing of your faith produces power, produces, you know, effectiveness, produces the resolution of the trial. But James says, no, it produces steadfastness. Why is this kind of steadfastness so desirable? Well, I would say it like this. I think that it's true that everything in life works better with this brand of steadfastness. If you want to have a good marriage, if you want to have a strong ministry, if you want to have an excellent business, if you want to have anything in your life be used and wonderful and good. You've got to have a stick to a steadfastness, an endurance about you that enables you to go the long haul. So often we want everything so quickly, but in order to get the best things, to look at the end of life and to have the family of your dreams you have to have steadfastness. That does not come overnight. To have the ministry of your dreams, to see fruitfulness flowing from your life, you've got to wait. You've got to remain. You've got to abide in Christ slowly but surely over years, over decades, and then watch that fruit begin to come from your life. And when we go through trials, that steadfastness is being produced in us. There have been just a handful of some of those 
heavier, more earth-shattering kinds of trials in my own life personally. Some of them related to ministry, some of them not related to ministry. But I tell you what, they have built within me a strength and a resolve that I know I did not have previously. God used all of that for good. And so a steadfastness, I encourage you to value that attribute. And then he says in verse 4, that there's something that we have to allow to happen inside of our lives. You see, we don't just automatically grow as we go through trials. We grow as we approach trials with faith. And let, verse 4, steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let this happen inside of your life. Don't quit the trial too early. Wait for the Lord, wait for steadfastness to have its full effect. And faith will let trials do that. The financial pressure or the unruly child or the crazy boss or the cancer you're enduring or the difficult marriage that you're in. As you endure and let steadfastness have its full effect, there's this beautiful thing that happens. You become, listen to this description, perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Who wouldn't want that description over their life? The only way to find that full maturity, that full strength, is to endure trials with that excellent brand of faith. So that's how we know that we want to approach trials, by faith, with the Lord. But perhaps as you're trying to let steadfastness have its full effect in your life, there's also this additional need within you. You know what you want to have produced in your character, but you also need help in this trial. You need wisdom. He says in verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, James writes, unstable in all his ways. So we might say and agree with James in verse 4 and say, Yeah, James, I want to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But I already know what I'm lacking. I am lacking wisdom. And so he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and often in a trial, we do lack wisdom. We don't know what to do. We don't know what God is trying to teach me in the midst of that trial. And so we're to ask God for wisdom in the midst of trials. You see, this is so unnatural to us. Faith enables us to ask God for wisdom, but the natural man looks everywhere else for wisdom in the midst of trials. I know over the years, God has spoken to me in so many different ways, through so many different means, in the midst of trials as I've asked him for wisdom. Most often, the Lord has said to me, Nate, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. I'm not asking for you to do anything. I'm asking for you to stand still. Don't leave. Don't depart. 
Just wait and watch me work in your life. Sometimes the Lord might say, well, there's a particular sin that I'm wanting you to repent of. Sometimes I might receive the wisdom that God is merely building up my strength for something unseen in the future. Sometimes the Lord is trying to give me the wisdom to lean upon others for help in a time of difficulty. Sometimes I see that the Lord is trying to purge a specific idol from my heart. Maybe the Lord is telling me to scale back and simplify my life, that this trial that I'm in is a mere result of poor decision-making and overloading my life. Sometimes the Lord will give me the wisdom that this trial is designed to help me move in a new direction, change course. And sometimes it's just simply that the Lord wants me to experience the fellowship of his sufferings. And so whether it's through the word, by his spirit, by his people, or all of the above, the Lord will give you the wisdom that you need at specific moments in time. As you're going through a trial, I remember a season where Christina and I were having a difficult time figuring out one of our daughters and we were just crying out to the Lord, Lord, in this particular area, we just don't know how to talk to her, relate to her, help her, coach her, lead her. And we just prayed and prayed, God, give us wisdom. And eventually we asked a friend of ours to sit with us and listen. And she had such incredible wisdom that was so counterintuitive to us, but it was the wisdom from God for that particular moment in time. Don't look within. Don't look without. Look up to God and ask him for wisdom in the midst of trial and know that he's a God who wants to do it. James says he gives generously to all without reproach. Understand, he's not going to correct you. He's not going to say, stop bothering me. Why are you so sinful? Why do you need my help? No, ask in faith, James says, with no doubting. Don't be like the man tossed to and fro. Don't be thinking to yourself, well, God is distant. He's uncaring. He's foolish. He's powerless. Don't be like that wave-tossed man. No, don't be unstable in that way, but believe and trust God. Ask God for that wisdom. And you know, certainly as we look into God's word, we see the way that the Lord used trials in the lives of his people, his men and women in so many different ways. Whether it was Hannah going through the trial of barrenness, well, that barrenness and that trial, it led to Samuel spiritually leading the nation for at least a generation. She had a child that she gave to God. She would not have done that had she not gone through the trial of barrenness. Or whether it's Paul and the physical infirmity that he received from the Lord after his abundance of revelations and seeing the heavenly realm designed to protect him from his pride. Or Joseph going through slavery in 13 years of being forgotten and thinking that the promises of God are not unfolding in his life, but he went through all of it so that he might become the second in command in Egypt. God was building a nation through his trial. Or Job being used by God to be able to taunt Satan and be known in a deeper, more intimate way by his man Job. Trials have a purpose. Ask God for that wisdom in the midst of that trial. God is working. God is faithful. Now, when you're in a trial, James tells us in verse 9, 
it is so important to rejoice over and in eternity. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So we have these two men, the poor believer and the rich believer, rich in this life. And the first reaction is very simple. The lowly, the poor believer, he's impoverished. He doesn't have much to his name. He's supposed to boast in his exaltation. He rejoices because he's gained a lot in Christ. He's a co-heir with Jesus. He's poor now, but he won't be poor forever. The rich, though, is supposed to rejoice, James says, in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he's going to pass away. Basically, he's going to die. He'll fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So why is, what is James saying when he says that the rich man is to rejoice in his humiliation or in his death or that he'll pass away or that he'll perish or that he'll fade away? Why is he supposed to rejoice in that? Well, the rich man rejoices that he is in Christ and he's on his way to heaven. You know, he, it's humbling to know that he's going to leave it all behind. It's humbling to know that this little empire that he's built here on earth might last beyond him, but he's going to die. He'll pass away. He rejoices because in Christ, he'll lose all things from this world and life. What is James saying? James is telling us that in the midst of trial, whether we're poor, or whether we're rich, we are to rejoice in eternity. This is such an applicable statement from James because when it comes to the subject of trials, one of the most major and constant trials that people go through in this life are trials of finances. It's amazing. Someone can be poor in poverty. They've got nothing to their name and they're in a financial trial. But then you have people who have plenty. They've got retirement accounts and are sending their kids to college and things are doing quite nicely. And then boom, they experience a financial trial as well, albeit of a completely different variety. But finances often lead to trials. And when we hit a financial trial, something concerning the state of this life, we're to rejoice in eternity. The natural response the non-faith response is to overemphasize our current state. But James says, get your eyes on eternity. Think about that eternal home. Now, closing out this idea or this discussion on trials, James says in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Here, what James is doing is he's just getting back to the simple truth that he'd already stated regarding trials. Remember verse 3? You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, he had written. Here he says, remain steadfast under that trial. You submit to it. You don't try to escape 
from underneath it. You stay under it. You remain under it. Like that last repetition under that bar in the gym. You stay. You go through that pain. You go through that difficulty. Don't leave it before you get every last drop out of it. You stay. You stay. You stay. And I would encourage you. There is a crown of life available to us in the next life. But I think also here in this life, great blessing that comes when we remain steadfast under trial. The natural response is to quit. Everybody's trying to quit a trial. Everybody's trying to get out from underneath it. Have endurance. Remain steadfast. Stay under. Because when you do, oh, when you do. You are going to experience such great blessings in life. Your character will grow. You will become stronger. God will do a work in your life that can only be described as a crown of life coming. Don't have a half-baked theology, one in which God owes you and should never allow you to endure any brand of pain. Remember the gospel. Know that Jesus endured difficulty. Jesus endured pain. And because he did, he won a bride for himself. Think of what he is doing in your life and what you will win as a result of remaining steadfast under trial. Do not quit. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.